0: Welcome to Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance. Join us for a conversation of life, leadership, and how today's top leaders are digitally transforming the enterprise.
1: Good morning, everyone.
0: Welcome. We are joined by Amber Lacanal, who is the managing consultant at Notion Consulting. She'll be moderating this session for you, and she is joined with our three panelists from the US Department of State, State Farm, and Deutsche Bank, and I am now going to pass it over and let Amber take it from here.
2: Thank you, Katie. And uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Amber. I work as a change leader and a managing consultant at Notion. And I work every day with chief technology officer and chief data officer. So I'm super happy to have this team on the phone today. And before we start, let's do a quick round table, just a minute or two to, to understand what's your role today, and what's your top priority um, for 2021. So Dwayne, would you like to start?
3: Awesome. Thank you, Amber. Glad glad to be here with Donald and JP. So my name is Dwayne Griffin. I'm the Vice President and Chief Data Officer for State Farm. I've been in my role for effectively six months now, uh, but I'm a 20-year State Farm employee. Uh, you know, how do you pick just one priority for 2021? I mean, we're living in a pandemic and technology is so critical to everything we're doing as a business. But what I would what I would hone in on a big focus for me is improving our business outcomes by really informing decisions and I would say positioning
0: for how we're using data as an enterprise asset. Hi, my name is Don Bauer. I am the Chief Technology Officer for Global Talent Management at the State Department. I currently manage the enterprise for about 70,000 users in the, uh, worldwide, globally. I would say my uh, number one priority right now is modernization, kind of keeping up with technology. And uh, obviously, cybersecurity is huge for us right now. Just protecting our personnel data is the most important. So uh, that that's kind of been where the focus is for us.
1: Thank you.
2: Sean pascal
1: Hi everyone. My name is JP Chauvet or Jean Pascal Chauvet. Uh, I'm CTO at Deutsche Bank. I'm CTO of the corporate banking business. Deutsche Bank has three businesses: retail bank, corporate bank, investment bank. I'm CTO of corporate bank. I've been at Deutsche Bank for seven years. My most of my career was actually investment bank CTO, and so corporate banking is just a few years. And. In terms of number one priority, for a few years now, digital transformation has been the number one priority, and cloud is part of this, and cloud is becoming real. And 2021, the number one priority is clearly to formulate a Deutsche Bank, Google. We signed a very big deal with Google recently, and so it's to formulate a 10-year strategy because we signed a 10-year deal of co-innovation, co-development, and obviously hosting as well. Uh, with uh, with Google.
2: Awesome, thank you so much. That's a perfect segue into jumping into the topic around the cloud journey that you have all started to work on, or, or probably probably further down the line. Jean-Pascal, since you started, do you want to tell us slightly more on why did you start that journey? What was the main business driver? And really, I mean, in a nutshell, but what's your like one sentence cloud strategy?
1: So we have a cloud first strategy. So the keyword is cloud first, but it doesn't mean anything. So uh, that's a great thing, but these, these are sort of single world of strategies. We actually tried a, a cloud migration with Azure a few years ago. And uh, so we started with all the emails and SharePoint and all this stuff. And then we started the business applications and we realized that it, it was not working. And there was a very simple reason is that our engagement with Microsoft was as a traditional vendor. They host, we have the application, we move the stuff. They have very little skin in the game in terms of the outcome. So more recently, we signed a big deal with, uh, with Google, which is in a completely different spirit because it's a partnership where there is co-development, co-innovation. Google put some capital, we put some capital. We even have projects with revenue uh, sharing agreement and believing that there is a much better chance that we're going to succeed because they have themselves a lot of the answers to how we are going to make this work. Sort of the summary of our our strategy is hosting, yes. uh, Cost saving business case and all all of that, eh, yes. But more important is co-innovation, co-development and end up in a place where regardless whether things are mainly cloud, mainly on-prem, regardless of this, where we have products that have been uh, co-engineered and have tapped into the the brain capital and, and, and the money capital of Google. Donald, do
2: you want to share a bit more and see if there is any parallel or any difference with Department of State strategy?
0: When I say strategy, it's obviously from our Office of Technology Services, which is my branch. Obviously, we're since we're the HRIS for the department. Yeah, I, I I kind of align with JP when he says cloud first. Cloud first, if you're a technologist, means that you design it in the cloud for the cloud. The government didn't necessarily, well, you know, you throw that word out there, but in reality, it was just a big, huge infrastructure as a service exercise with a, with a provider, right? You, it's a lift and shift. What we're finding out now is obviously we're not architected to take advantage of any of the capabilities of cloud when you do a lift and shift. So we're in this evolutionary standpoint of modernizing cloud first. My famous analogy is we're working on the airplane while we're flying it. I can't tell the entire planet, we can't pay you for six months while we develop something new. So we have to evolve it. So we're really like morphing our architecture, leveraging what we can out of what cloud brings to the table, mix that with a whole bunch of security. And now this new zero trust mindset of how do we segment and and, and compartmentize the information we deliver so that we only give what's needed to the right people. And that kind of informs our way forward. And some of it, I don't have a choice on. Because I have to pick my legacy platforms that are the most critical and then match that up with the vulnerabilities that are currently floating around. Yeah, I mean, from the State Farm
3: perspective and I always, you know, you orient around what do you know? What do you know about State Farm and what are, what are we kind of known for as an insurer, as, a, as an industry leading insurer? and you know we're known for being a good neighbor we're really known for focusing on the customer and the customer being the center of what we sell and offer through our insurance uh, you know products and offerings what i would say our journey from the cloud is driven off with our customer expectations to really deliver uh, upon i think the experience as well as to provide the level of service that we need to for our customers requires us to be focused on going into the cloud so that comes with the business agility that comes from increased analytic capabilities that also comes from just I would say market opportunities, and what's obviously close and dear to me, it just comes from taking advantage of our data. If you think about where where we've kind of transcended from from a technology I think where j p was saying earlier, if you aren't going to the cloud, then you're not going to be in business. Just when I think about I guess how I would highlight our our cloud journey, it's obviously one of our largest changes that we've kind of gone through and and Don and um, JP have hit some of the challenges from their organization. I think we're a couple years into our journey. We started a little bit late from State Farm. And that if you were to go back maybe five, you know, seven, a few years ago, the cloud was a heavy cosplay where it was really about cost and how could we drive the cost of technology down. Now, cost is still a big factor, but what you're hearing from us now and what's really focused is how can I create better experiences and how can I improve the business outcomes? So, you know, I would say our kind of cloud journey is in, in the midst of that right now and why our, our cloud first strategy uh, is, is very important and critical for us. It's really about the customer.
2: Cloud is a huge investment. So you have to have a business case for that. So was there any challenges along the way in terms of achieving the full investment and the full expected value of your cloud investment and in terms of also getting buying in the organization?
1: Yeah, maybe I can go with a couple of thoughts. Our observation is typically these cloud vendors are very good at selling their stuff. Everything looks amazing. And we tend to be pretty aware of our own shortcomings internally. Observation and probably bigger set of surprises when it comes to obstacles was the cloud and the cloud vendors come with a completely new set of constraints that we don't know. And quite often, they don't know. So I'll give you some examples. And the examples are very focused on on Google Cloud, because that's the, the cloud that we are going with. They have amazing resiliency by design from the ground up. They have a great disaster recovery mechanism. Now, in financial services, there is a rule that says, comes from the regulators, almost everywhere in the world, that says, your primary and your uh, backup DR data centers need to be at a certain distance. And sometimes the regulator tell you the distance, minimum distance, sometimes it doesn't. But it, it has to be far, right? Well, GCP in the UK, as an example, has three sites, but they are virtual sites. They're all in the same building. So it's not that... Google you know, didn't design their stuff very well. It's just that they are not fully aware of the requirements of uh, of, uh, of of financial services. And financial services just assume that everybody knows this. So that was a very interesting a very interesting obstacle, right? Solution, there'll be a the new data center over there. Another example that i that I have is China. So when you are a global business, right? You do business in every country in the world or almost every country in in the world. Well, in China, you can't have anything on public cloud. Not just that, but in China, you cannot have your data on any public cloud anywhere in the world. So it's not a data localization problem, which you have in Turkey, in South Korea, in Luxembourg, Switzerland, you have a few countries like this. In China, it's very different. It's actually, if it's a, a, a transaction, a piece of data that has any relationship with a Chinese legal entity in mainland China, that piece of data cannot be anywhere on the cloud. So if you have an application that sits in Germany or in the UK or in the US, that sucks this data to do some ana- analytics, it cannot travel through the public cloud. They were not aware of it, right? And so you have this thing that you you, you, you go through them like as you are peeling the, the, the onion. And I wish there was some, I don't know, some consultancy or somebody who can come up with a, a list. And maybe here we can come up with a bit of a list of all those obstacles as opposed to discovering them, you know, every company discovered them one by one. Super helpful.
3: Well, I would say, you know, for for us, what was interesting from the initial adoption of, okay, we're going to go, we're going to be cloud first, and the cloud became an option. There became then this immediate rush of everyone wanting to go in and, and, and start that cloud adoption. So I would say an initial learning we kind of encountered on were just competing priorities, that those competing priorities then brought into conflicting lessons that we didn't want to learn that I would, I would say was introduced from moving into a, a public, uh, more of a cloud uh, type environment with certain solutions. And that could be anything from if you think about the way our on-prem environments were designed, DevOps being a big part of you had your your infrastructure group that handled a lot of the infrastructure type topics and security might have been closer there. Then you had your application group. Well, when you're going out there and you're losing these, these cloud services, that line becomes really owner much closer to the application groups going deeper into the stack and then infrastructure in terms of what you may have built to help enable some of the patterns and some of the adoption. So that creates a lot of security risk, And I think we're done. <laughs> we'll are talk to, to where, you know, there, there are certain controls with the, the wall of protection of being on-prem being gone that you then have to manage between and you have to create responsibilities around. So, so what I would say, maybe some of our earlier lessons, especially as it relates to competing priorities, how do you learn fast and at the pace in which you might learn, especially if there's a high appetite of demand within your organization? is that what we kind of built in uh, through some early lessons learned was automation is mandatory. You can't make any change manually. If you can't make a change through an automated nature, you can't do that change. And there were actual roadblocks in order for teams to do that. On top of that, so dealing with the control of that and dealing with not being behind the wall to protect it, you know, we work with external partners. We work with Ernst & Young pretty closely on standing up our cloud migration and creating a framework for our what was called our use case process, which dealt with how you could submit actually a request for a solution or for using a service or for moving an application out in the public cloud. And there was criteria to that that helped gave guidance and help guide into some of those expectations that were being formed up. But early on, it was rapid fire for us, based on demand and based on some of the learnings we had on. So I would I would share that if you're if you're still if you're just starting off on that
2: journey. I'm sure that the minute you announce it, everybody is rushing to you with like requests. And how do you funnel that and manage that in a, a bit of a structured way? That's a great learning. That's rapid fire fight. Donald, anything else that was like a key learning? you were like I wish someone told me that.
0: The thing that I that I had to pay most attention to, at least from a government perspective, was cost. You know, we plan our budget two years in advance. It goes through a very rigorous process. OMB approves it and everything else. So, number one, you have to actually anticipate that you're going to need the money and then you're going to have to make a great case business case for it. But really what I had to do was say, I need to get twice as much money as I already get to do this because I had to ask for extra budget to come in. And the other thing that people need to realize, cloud is not a money-saving exercise. So if somebody tells you, go to the cloud, you're going to save money. No, you shift from a locally owned, you own your own hardware and you have to replace it every so often to now you get rid of that problem or that issue of upgrading and keeping things alive. You hand it off to somebody, but now you pay a by the second charge for that convenience. I mean, it's nice to have and it's a great opportunity to go, but you would never do it to save money. And then the other aspect of that is, and I think Dwayne touched on it a bit, is what what you have to realize is you need a different set of skills in your organization to manage the new infrastructure, the new cloud. You don't have as much control. You can't reach into your servers and play with them like you can on-prem, which means you have to now change your mindset to, I have to build within the constraints, as JP said, I'm given new constraints that I have to deal with. And then I have to figure out how to make everything work. And then I have to have the appropriate resources on my team now that can actually support the organization adequately in this new environment while keeping the old one running. And and honestly, we didn't see any, I think we did the projections. It was nine years before we saved any money. And the only way we save money is by reducing staff, which means I'm getting rid of my server jockeys and I'm hiring a cloud resource in its place. And it's maybe a two for one because I have less work to do now. My infrastructure folks aren't doing patching every day and all the other work that we have been doing.
2: Awesome. That's, that's a very good point, because I feel like in in any of those transformation, what we have seen is that you always have to think about your talent and like, how do you upskill them or are they the right fit for what you need for now? In addition to how do you help people change behavior and like they have to adjust to new processes and new policies and new ways of working I would love to know from a State Forum and Deutsche Bank perspective, what are the biggest challenges in terms of talent and have a started story, if you have, um,
1: solving them? So an interesting thing that we noticed, when we started this, everybody was focused in, in that topic on the teams. So we need the teams upskill, and we need the teams to do this. And we need the teams to do mean, we didn't really think about the directors and the managing directors and the VPs of this and that they are the decision makers. Do they have the skills to make decisions that make sense in the cloud? And very quickly, we realized that at that level of decision making directors, etc., etc., nobody was making the time to get certified or to like really learning and stuff like this. But in the teams without telling them anything, they got certified. They were so excited. They were so interested. And so as CTO, one of my big challenge was how do I get this group of people who have 30 years of tech experience, who have cut their teeth with mainframe and, 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 and Linux and stuff like that to upskill themselves right? so that they don't walk into a decision-making meeting pretending they know about the cloud, but actually know about the cloud. And so my like one of the lessons learned was your teams are fine. They'll get more, especially the, the younger one. They'll, they'll upskill themselves. You need to give them the tools, possibly the money or whatever it is, the, the time, maybe. They can carve out time, and we have done all of this. But they have the motivation. They are, they are eager to, to go to the class. But that layer of decision-maker, in my opinion, that's the hard one. And they need to be forced to go to classes and to go to Coursera or to pluricite and and get the training and get certified. One of the rules we said is if you are not certified in GCP, at least one of the thread of GCP, you cannot participate in the decision-making, regardless whether you're a managing director or director or VP of, the, of this or of that. We're still working through the acceptance of that rule, but it, we feel it's, it's quite necessary.
3: Yeah, and I, I think JP hit on really a great, important part to it, especially from when you think about the skills at, at the team level, the, the practitioner skills of working in the cloud, the analyst community is highly interested. I mean, the the new, latest, greatest things in in every platform, whether it's GCP, AWS, you know, Azure, they have robust certification processes. I mean, you go deep levels into that. So getting the momentum there was was really easy, especially with a vibrant and very hungry workforce, but the leadership aspect of leading cloud platform versus leading on-prem, and and, and Don hit this earlier in his comment, you know, as a leadership perspective, if you're thinking of how do you lead this from a cost angle, it is completely different than how you would think about your on-prem environments or your on-prem solutions than then going into the cloud, so that leadership skill set of the change, I think, was, was really critical, And and what I think worked well for us from State Farm, especially in the early parts of the journey, was the modeling of some of our more senior executives getting that actual certification. So for us, we're primarily based on AWS. So it was, uh, you know, peers of mine uh, who who are leading some of the platform work, getting their cloud practitioner certification AWS. I obtained mine as well for uh, just leading some of the data spaces within there. And then that trickling down into our second line leaders, our business executives and all that getting closer into the decision making connected to. It. That's a strong direction, JP, about the requirement piece you said there. We didn't go that far, but it came up in some conversations
1: in a certain areas, and stuff. And it's not that hard, by the way, you know, and it's so well done. Like I wish when I was in my twenties, Coursera existed at that price, right? It's free for 14 days. And it's so well done. The, the it's on video. It's it, you know, I went through it, many of my peers went uh, went through it. You know, some manager said, Yeah, I'm too old for this and stuff. It's like, okay, but then you can't make decisions on on cloud, right? On cloud architecture or, or stuff like that. So interesting.
2: Yeah. That's fascinating. And Dwayne, and I would love to know, how did you get them to, it sounds like you got a lot of traction in, in terms of leadership, you know, getting certified and then showing the example. How did you get them? Like, what was your secret? Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we made it a, we made it 100% a culture initiative. When you really are defining culture, culture it's not defined by the words you put on the paper and all that, you know, we, we want to go to the cloud. We really modeled that and we we rewarded it. So, you know, you could, you could actually be recognized with my specific area. You know, what, what I kind of really did is I created a you are awesome because we're going to AWS. So it was a you were awesome uh, actual wall and motivation. To where you would see one, two, three certifications, then you start seeing the leadership ones getting added to that. Just approaching it from a a cultural shift change, which was in support, I would say, with our partnership with our HR partners to really help motivate the growth mindset aspects that going to solutions like this would drive, I think just helped create the momentum for what we saw was huge uptick.
2: That's amazing. And, and you're right. I think this is what we have seen in a lot of transformation is actually when you reward and you show leadership and role modeling, this is probably one of the only ways for people to follow. Um, I love that. That's a great example. And I love the You Are Awesome wall. I will steal that. <laughs> Donald, any other example of how you drive that cultural shift or how you faced uh, talent challenges?
0: We're kind of middle in it right now. And we've resigned ourselves to the fact that we're never going to be 100% cloud. There's just certain things we'll never store there. So we now have to deal with this hybrid situation and then really minimizing. So now it becomes, uh, you know, in Dwayne's lane, data management. So looking at how to minimize what we store in the cloud and then providing just-in-time access to it when needed, but not persisting it. Meaning if I need to look at a bunch of details about somebody, I'd rather not store those in the cloud. I'd rather have a web service call back on-prem, pull that additional data, and I only have to store some very light, non-identifying information, unique identifiers in the cloud that mean nothing. You hack it. Who cares? It's a, it's a good, right? So those are the areas that we've kind of focused on with that. With respect to my teams, I'm limited to what I can do, obviously, and we're very heavy focused on contractors. So I take care of my federal staff. I try and recognize them for that opportunity. I'm, I'm 100% with Dwayne on culture. The the real big issue is, and JP kind of touched on this, if you are in my generation, right, the boomer alert, you know, uh, there's a disdain for us in the industry. They're like, ah, pff, they're old, they can't learn new stuff, they're, they have no value. What I have is 30 years of experience in IT as a computer science guy. I was trained by my degree to learn new stuff. That's part of the process. So, really getting out there and leading the way and approaching it as if this is a good thing. And also letting everybody know that we're going to bring you along on the journey, but you have to put in some skin in the game as well. So, because so many times there are people that look like, well, my job's over. I might as well just go find a new opportunity because they're going to kick me to the curb because I'm old and it's new technology. And if you create the opportunity to say, look, learn this, there's a place for you because Your business understanding is more valuable to me than your technical skill. And that's one thing most organizations fail to realize that, yeah, it's a bunch of code on a page, but it's the business context that makes that code valuable. And your knowledge as an IT professional about how my business operates is probably the most valuable thing you can bring to the table. I can always teach you a different language or a different technology, but my business understanding that you have is more important.
2: That's fascinating. And I think that touches on what we talked about a little earlier in creating that customer experience, being business-focused versus tech-focused. This is the value I'm bringing to you. And then on the back end, being this never-ending learner, but always showing up and talking in terms of like balancing the technology with the business. And I think that's that's really fascinating in terms of change management and education of, of the team. And I think a big challenge, you're right, because there's always that perception from the business that, it's way too complicated. I don't understand. I don't have a say in it. Like, let leave me out of that. So how do we make them see that? Awesome. I know we wanted to touch a little bit on also security strategy and governance so that our audience also get a sense of how have you handled that piece specifically? Because security is obviously a big piece in a cloud-first
1: strategy. So first of all, when we think about security, it actually can mean quite different things but by default we we mean you know is the data secure and encryption stealing things blah, blah blah and all this and our experience and the experience of our regulators and our peers and the entire industry is that the cloud vendors are a lot more secure than we are that's the experience however there are some aspects of security that go maybe on the edge of that definition yeah, where it's maybe not that clear cut. So, for example, one that I, I, I really love, and Duane, and, and you actually talked a little bit about it, which is our own bank policies, that a lot of them are in the area of security, regulatory compliance stuff, right? And we have spent the last 40 years implementing those those bank policies, right? That have big tech elements. Yeah. And some of them are tools and button clicks and you know, like very simple things like operational readiness before you go to production. This is the policy and then all that stuff. Now, try to pull this into the cloud. You talk to your cloud vendor and you ask, how do you do this in your own company? And what they'll say, and that's what Dwayne says, and it was quite revealing to me, is it's all automated. And the way they describe it is policy as code. How do, we, do they automate it? They have it as code. So there is a PDF document that, that tells you what the policy is, and then there is a piece of code that implements it, right? How many banks, how many companies have that in their own outfit, right? Nobody. That transformation is going to be, I think, very, very interesting. On the one hand, you'll have to code all your policies, and some of them are not going to fit neatly into code. So you'll, ha- you'll have to change some aspect of your policies. So I don't know where this is going. I really don't know. But this is one of these new constraints that will have to factor into the business cases and, and, and into the all, all, all these different things. And especially when it comes to data and all the data privacy laws and, and, and all those policies that have been developed over like so many years, and regulators have come up with so many rules and so many audit points and so many of this stuff. We should have runs in production. How do we move this over there on the cloud when the rule is everything's automated?
3: And I think JP, you hit on that. That's a key point that the policy is code and what we operated in, in our legacy environment on-prem with how we adhered to policy. There were a lot of, there was directive, there were a lot of manual things that were in place, and then there were manual processes to check that, right? That's right. Well, you go out now into, uh, onto these new platforms and it's, it's open. I mean, a, a violation of policy has a huge mistake in ramification. You you misconfigure one thing, you leave a port open. We've read about some companies that have unfortunately gone through that. And it becomes at the power of, at the lowest levels an organization could expose, could create one vulnerability. And I, I would say from a security strategy, that's key. Policy is code. Automation has to be king. And, and if you don't get that right from step one, you could find yourself in some places you don't want to be. I would just say it that way.
1: Yeah. And it's probably worse in government, government maybe. I don't know. Donald, Like, how, how do you well, look at this? You know, it's
0: funny you bring that up because actually, it's a good thing. You know, you're, you're kind of saying, hey, th- this is a minefield that you have to navigate. I can tell you the biggest concern that any security professional will tell you, especially if you have a security clearance, is the insider threat. It's the rogue person in your organization that intentionally does something. And when we set up, we just moved our entire development network to the cloud. It took us about a year. But my entire team, we did infrastructure as code. My servers are built with a single button. What does that prevent? That prevents somebody from missing a configuration on a server. It's hardened because I can, and it's repeatable. I can hit it a hundred times and make a hundred identical servers. Well, the advantage of that is, Whenever I deploy new code, I blow away the existing server and I create a new one. And then I put that code on there. So I know exactly what I start with and I know where I'm at. I can't tell you that with my current production environment because somebody went in and tweaked something, something over here and that and the other. The other thing that that this whole process provides for is I actually have active AI scanning of my code for vulnerabilities while it's going through this automation pipeline. Now, that's a new concept for everybody. That and virus checking. I can literally scan my code for viruses during this pipeline to get to that CI/CD, that continuous integration mindset where I can literally continuously deploy. Well, we're evolving to that. And that's really exciting because that makes me more secure, which gives me a little more peace of mind. It doesn't, doesn't mitigate your concerns of all the stuff you're bringing up. But I think there's a great positive aspect to providing going in that direction because now there is no human hands. And my biggest problem in my SDLC is somebody missing a step in a process to deploy code. We have a process. It's documented. It's a, it's step-by-step. Step. Human beings miss steps and vulnerabilities are exposed. So yes, 100% fine.
2: Dwayne, we touched a little bit on that too, but any advice or anything that you have work on tied to this, how have you tackled like, anything related to data or information governance?
3: I know my peers on the panel know, know this well. There's a uh... Direct industry trend going toward zero trust, which, which really is kind of centered on understanding your data, understanding how your data is connected to your, your business processes and who has access to it and where. I think from the data lens, uh, as you as you go across that from a from a data security as well as connecting closely to data management, it's it's a zero stakes game to have a clarity around your organizational position around this. To where Don was saying earlier, I do think it drives into what the power of what the cloud can create because the, the is there, but maybe the muscles in how to create that and then the culture of understanding and implementing that to business process is still, you know, I would say we're heavy in the works of further defining or maturing in that space.
1: A, a thought on, on, on governance, right? our experience is the cloud journey, you have to have the cloud vendor to have skin in the game and therefore to be part of the governance. And there are some pieces that is mainly you it's, and there are some pieces that will be mainly the cloud vendor. But the, like, without that skin in the game, I don't see how the big business cases get realized. I, I, I don't. And Donald said it's, it's not about cost and because cost on prem is predictable, right? It may be expensive, but it's predictable. Cost uh, in the cloud is unpredictable. How do you make a business, business case out of it that the business will stand behind, right? When you say, well, my cost is going to be between these and these. Oh, <laughs> I'm not sure they will, they will sign off so one key point on governing the cloud journey so that you realize the outcome is the cloud vendor has to have skin in the game and they have to have to own pieces of it. And some pieces will have to be developed from scratch by the cloud vendor because they don't have it or because they have it wrong or because it's too hard for us to do it or whatever.
2: As we are wrapping up, I was curious to see if you have like one takeaway overall or one nugget that you would like the audience to live with? I know we talked a lot about never stop learning, the culture shift, be able to be agile and bounce back from all the surprises that you find in the cloud journey, stakeholder management and business engagement. Would you have like one final tip or advice for the audience as they start or they keep on evolving in this journey?
1: Yeah, maybe like on, on my side, the, the benefits of cloud, we keep talking about them. It's great, the elasticity is great, the automation is great, the agility is great, the capabilities, especially in, in data are amazing. It's, it's all fantastic. And the business loves talking about it and board members love talking about it and, and stuff like this. But it comes as a with a completely new set of constraints. And those constraints, we on the business side do not understand them. And on the cloud vendor side, sometimes they do understand it, but sometimes they don't because it derives from our own industry, whether it's because we are highly regulated or or, or whatever. And so I go back to the point I made made earlier, unless it's a partnership where the vendor has skin in the game and we solve the problem with you, I think realizing the, the business cases is going to be very difficult. We won't know next week or next month. Well, we'll know in five, 10 years, whether we realize those big business cases. But having the vendor, having the skin in the game is, is fantastic. And at Deutsche Bank, we have signed a deal, which is not a vendor relationship. It's a partnership with co innovation and co-development and a lot of cool things. And it seems to me this has a better way of, uh, of working. One other thought also that we have experienced is if you manage to place your senior people or some of your senior people in, you move them and you have them employees of Amazon or, or Google, and they are the one that you interface with. You have a much better chance of succeeding. And when you can do an exchange of of decision makers like this, this is the best way because the relationships are there, the mutual interests are there,
2: and you have the two yeah. sides represented. So yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, I, I would echo heavily what JP said. You know, thinking about this, to me, there's a there's a really great uh, African proverb that kind of you know goes as, "If you want to go fast, go alone." If you want to go far, you got to go together, and I think JP's kind of hitting on exactly to me what that point of. I think a cloud journey requires a lot of partnerships externally and internally. You you really have to you have to get a lot of um, key stakeholders involved. Not only the, the provider or the platform in which you're going with, whether it's the SaaS provider, whoever that might be that, that's cloud-based, or it's the infrastructure provider or more the past type provider, as well as your internal partners. You know, I'm representing the data space. I work closely with our, our more CTO area, work closely with our business area. You know, there's, there's a conglomerate, I think, of core groups that have to come together to be able to go far in the value that cloud can deliver. So I would say that that's key.
0: You know, I'll touch on something that Dwayne brought up earlier. I think the one thing that we should never overlook, and everybody overlooks it, this is as much a culture problem as it is a technical problem, and change management is critical. And I would say, JP, you had asked. Consultancies. I can tell you, the best investment you would ever make was to hire somebody that has experience in change management to help you get that message out to the people, so they understand what's going on. Because there is this instantaneous of everyone. It's like, oh, we're going to cloud, and some people are looking around like, I'm going to lose my job, and other people are like, holy crap, I got to learn something new. So this whole about bunch bunch of anxiety around this effort, and the business context gets lost because it's all about people. So if you can frame it in such a way where people feel like they're being invited on a journey, that they're included, that you're including them, on the, that you provide them with the resources and the opportunity, that the training, whatever it may be, so they feel included in the in the migration, you're going to succeed as a business because everybody's going to go with you. Otherwise, you're going to be literally watching a mass exodus of talent, taking business knowledge with them
2: when you really need them to help you get to this new location. Awesome. I mean... Donald, I cannot agree more. What we do every day is really managing that aspect. And our main principle is really co-creation and including everybody in the journey. So definitely 100%. Just want to thank all of you. It was an amazing conversation. Super interesting. So thank you so much. And looking forward to another conversation.
0: Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to the Millennium Live podcast. New episodes every Monday. If you have interest in participating in a discussion like this one, feel free to reach out to us. Email info at mill-all.com.